0: Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry audio blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. This is Rochelle Babordana of the Charlotte Mason Poetry team. At Charlotte Mason Poetry, we like to bring to light a better understanding of Mason's life work. In this education as a life, perhaps no one shines brighter than PNEU luminary and Charlotte Mason's good friend, Emmeline Steinthal. Without the influence of Emmeline Steinthal, the Parents' National Education Union might never have come to be. And without her influence, it might not have had such a far reaching, positive, and enduring impact for good. She was, as Charlotte Mason calls her, the first and inspiring colleague. Ruskin says, we know someone best when we know them at home. To that end, I'm thrilled to introduce to you Emmeline's great-granddaughter, Mrs. T. Mrs. T, I am beyond thrilled and excited to have you joining us here today to shed light on not only your great-grandmother, but your family as a whole. It's hard to even know where to begin. Your family is made up of unsung heroes. They went beyond discussing how the world needs changing, and they worked to change it for the better. The ripples of what your great grandmother has done is still felt today. And I personally owe her such a debt of gratitude for just the light and the joy that she has brought to my own family. And I'm sure that everyone in the Charlotte Mason world that is introduced to Emmeline Steinthal will feel the same way.
1: Firstly, thank you so much. And it's, it, to me, this is very exciting because I will be absolutely honest. Growing up, I didn't know very much about her. So for me, it's been such a delight meeting with you and connecting with you and actually finding out more and giving me the inspiration to really find out much more about who Emmeline was and where we all came from. So thank you for this opportunity. It's lovely. Um, and I'm very happy to share with you as much as I know, but please appreciate I'm still doing my own family research, but I'm finding out a lot more than I knew just a few months ago. So.
0: Oh, that's so wonderful. And I think maybe we could begin with Emmeline Steinthal. She and Frances had four children and they were Paul Telford.
1: Yes, that's right. So Paul Telford, he was the eldest. He was the first-born son and was actually always known as Telford. So he was my grandfather. Then there's Dorothea, who was, as I understand it, actually the first PU pupil. US. Um, she never married. She was the only one in the family who kept the name of title. Francis Eric was third, uh, and he was always known as Eric. And then Paul Cuthbert was the youngest. And Charlotte Mason was godmother to Paul
0: that's so wonderful she was actually Um, quite the family friend wasn't she
1: she was she was a very good friend she was very good to them and Dorothea and excuse me because I always refer to her as Aunt Dot but Aunt Dot who was the most wonderful character I adored her as a child and she remembers charlotte mason and how kind she was and always gave them presents at christmas and and a very sort of warm person she was a big part of their lives and the fact that she was asked to be godmother to paul i think shows the real closeness it, it wasn't just a, in our terms a business relationship it was very much a family But interestingly, we have one of the properties they lived in, as as you know, was called St. John's. And we have the visitor's book for all the visitors who went to St. John's. Now, we'll touch on this later, but G.K. Chesterton monopolizes the visitor's book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But Charlotte's name doesn't appear at all. Mm -hmm. So she never actually stayed with them. But of course, they were very close by. even. Even when Charlotte was in Ambleside and Emmeline was in Ilkley, it's actually only well in our day it's only a forty-minute drive, so it would have taken them longer. But it's not it's not a great distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but their correspondence was an enormous amount of letters and and correspondence between them.
0: Yes, and I do I believe that Emmeline was the one that did the travelling to see Charlotte rather than vice versa. But we will touch on G.K. Chesterton some more, and as he, he is a larger-than-life character, of course. I do, re- I do remember reading, because um, her great-grandmother, she traveled a lot to the PNEU branches, and at one of the meetings she was to give a paper, but she was under the weather, so, so Gilbert Chesterton took her place. But I'm sure that it was an even trade for everyone that was at the meeting, because your great grandmother was so well loved. And whenever she spoke at any of the meetings, there were always rave reviews and hearty thanksgiving for everything that she spoke on. A lot of times she would give brush drawing lessons, clay modeling lessons. She would speak about handicrafts or she would speak about the Parents' National Educational Union, which she was just so instrumental in the founding of. As a matter of fact, I mean, she really, I feel like when she met Charlotte Mason, so we'll put this maybe into a little bit of time and space for um, our listeners, is that it was in 1887, most likely. At the time, Mrs. Steinfeld was raising three children under the age of four. She went on to have four children in the span of six years. Charlotte Mason had delivered a number of lectures as a fundraising for an addition to a church, I believe, and so it was 1887, and Emmeline Steinthal reached out to Charlotte Mason to seek advice on the home education of her children. A friendship and a working relationship ensued, and then it was your grandma, your great grandmother who really picked up the ball and ran with it, and was so instrumental in carrying carrying out. Charlotte Mason's lifelong vision of the Parents' National Educational Union. Your great-grandmother was 13 years Charlotte Mason's junior. I think I resonate with her because she was also, she refers to herself as an older mother. So she would have been 32 at the time of their meeting and Charlotte Mason would have been 45, which um, is wonderful because she goes on to help in in establishing parents union schools in her 60s. is So exciting to me. So, Emmeline was a painter, a sculptor, a writer, an editor, a teacher, a philanthropist, and a civil rights activist. Um, Her most important roles though, were that of wife, friend, mother and grandmother I I wonder if you can take us maybe on a more personal level with your great-grandmother and what you found out about or what you know about the Steinfeld children and even outside of the legacy of the Parents' National Educational Union, the legacy that we see in in your own family.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. I think the role of being a mother was actually that the more I learn about her, everything was important to her but as a mother and a grandmother that was her that was her primary role that's how i see it but that's because i see her as as family her children were so important to her in fact telford was born with some a, a deformity in his feet which i didn't know until recently and so her priority was actually she she turned down some invitations to speak because she had to take him to switzerland for doctor's um, guidance on how they could to work with this. She was a very dedicated mother, but I think she was dedicated in every aspect of her life, whether it was with the children or the grandchildren. Telford was, he, he actually went to rugby school, which is obviously a well-known public school in the UK. Dorothea was educated at home and she, she loved it. She knew that from from very early days, her love of the nature, everything surrounding her was so important. And she was a very keen artist in the way that she wanted to learn about birds and flowers and her nature books. And I learned only last week that apparently we have in our family and I haven't seen them 13 volumes of Aunt Dot's books, which are all about birds, and it includes her paintings and flowers and brush drawings. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And one of my cousins have has these, so I'm can't wait to, to to actually see them myself. Aunt Dot was a very she was a very she was tiny Aunt Dot, absolutely tiny, but she was a very very strong person. And in fact, she during the first world war she was uh, she volunteered as an ambulance driver and she was on the front line she was when Emmeline died aunt dot very much seemed to be the one who being the girl of the family but she was the one who stepped in i think as the mother role really to the children and she was the one who corresponded when there was obviously people were approaching her for information about Emmeline when they were writing about charlotte mason and it was, it was always Aunt Dot who was there with the, with the details, with the background. She kept diaries. She kept journals. And I, have, I think I've shared with you before on her trip to the Holy Land, which was, I think, in 1933. She kept this extraordinary journal of the detail in it. And again, with her drawings and naming of all the birds she saw on this sort of three-month trip she was just the most wonderful kind woman but also very strong real inner strength and I think that comes from Emmeline I think Emmeline's husband Francis was a very very kind gentleman a very loving husband that definitely comes across from things I know about the family and I think I think Emmeline was probably the strong the strong one in the family and, and aunt dot definitely inherited that Eric, I think, was a character. He was a, a very bright man. He, he taught. He, he became a teacher. Um, he also played uh, rugby at international level, which our family are all very proud of. <laughs> and he married an artist. He married Maria Zimmer, who, again, was German background. And they had a son, uh, Martin, who was cousin to my, to my father. And he had a, a, a tragic ending during the war, but he was on a horse in Africa and rode into a branch and never never sort of gained consciousness again. And so they only ever had the one child, but Martin actually had, his wife had actually conceived just before his accident. So he never met his son, Brian, but they did actually have a grandchild. And again, I think I had mentioned to you that Emmeline had looked high and low, I think, for... an. A, what I would call an album for parents to write down all the notes about their children as they develop over the years and she couldn't find anything which was appropriate and she was trying to look for one for Eric and his wife Maria so that they could record all the childhood details of Martin and um, I have that I have the original copy and photographs and it's, it's quite extraordinary but she they were, these were published, so I imagine Emmeline had a series of these published, and then Paul, who was the youngest son, I remember very well, actually, just again, I just knew him as Uncle Paul. He was a very big, round, very nice man. I'm not actually sure, I think he also did some teaching as well, so the the, the education and the caring for other people, that definitely came through. So Emmeline and Francis had the four children, they had eight grandchildren, and then 16 great-grandchildren. So, you know, the family has... <laughs> and of course, one of the reasons I was so interested in Emmeline initially was because we took her name. We never had, I never had the name Steintor, so I was Jacqueline Petrie. So we took Emmeline Petrie's name and that's why they all became Petrie, um, apart from Aunt Dot, who's, who was Dorothea Steintor till the day she passed away. <laughs>
0: Right, and was that because of of anti German sentiment during World War One?
1: Yes, it was it was a really interesting a really interesting situation because actually Francis was born in in Bradford. He wasn't born in Germany. His father Carl Gustav was born in Germany, but had come over in his early years and was working in Bradford. So the family was well established, and of course the Einstein. There were a lot of Germans who came over to that area because of the wool industry and the name Steintor was was acceptable but during the first world war Telford changed his name although Telford actually never went to war because he had a terrible accident and lost two fingers and damaged his hand he was a very 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 clever uh, engineer but both Eric and Paul did fight in the world war one and they signed up as uh, as Steintor but they changed their name to Petrie because there were repercussions. Yes. And in fact, just as an aside, because I, I was researching this the other day, Francis had a brother who was in Germany during the war. He was married, he had children, and he actually, in his early 70s, the Gestapo were giving him a really tough time. I won't go into the details, but sort of threats, et cetera. And he actually, Moritz actually took his own life to save okay. his wife and his children. And it was purely because of his name, because he wasn't a practicing Jew.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, the family were originally German Jews, but he wasn't a practicing Jew. But because he had three grandparents who were Jewish, the Gestapo, you know, were mm-hmm. were after him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the name Steintor was, I mean, Emmeline and Francis always kept the name Steintor. Yes. But that's why we changed the name to Petrie. I think it's really disappointing. As a child, I wanted to go back to the name of Steintor. <laughs> But but that was the reason, because we were German Jews originally. So the children, the the grandchildren, of, of which my father was one, are all very artistic, creative. I think my father, who I adored, was a very kind gentleman. I think he was very like Francis, actually. Very correct, very loving, adored his family, a wonderful musician, a very good artist. And he fought in the Second World War and then came back and worked for a company for his 45 years of of working. Um, He worked for Unilever, but his love was nature. It was, you know, it was being outside. It was, and and again, all of them, his twin sister and his two other sisters were of the same milk. They all had passion. They all had a thirst for knowledge I think the natural talent was probably artistic creative Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and also as Jane and I, Jane my cousin and I were saying the other day, we love projects, hence me sitting here, (laughs) but we love projects and that has come through the family and I think that again has probably come through from Emily very much so. Yes. Aunt Pauline who was my father's younger sister she was a very good artist, and she exhibited in in galleries. His twin sister, Christine, was at the Royal Academy of Music and was a t- very, very talented musician. And Peggy, his elder sister, who was absolutely wonderful woman, she trained as a governess in Ambleside.
0: Yes, I know that our listeners are going to want to know more about that. Was there anything that your cousin was able to share with you about that?
1: she She was very, yes. Peggy, uh, Jane mentioned that that, that Peggy always talked about her training at Ambleside, and she thinks it was for three years, Jane thought it was three years
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, training, she said it was the best time of her life Um, (laughs) and the friends she met there she stayed in touch with and Aunt Peggy was I think 96, she was either 96 or 98 when she died and she stayed in touch with these people throughout her life they were the most important friends because the the things they had shared together and they had learned together and she trained to be a governess and jane mentioned one of the things that peggy did whilst whilst there was she had a tin of of milk and they had to put it in their pack and then walk up a mountain so by the time it got by the time they got to the top of the mountain the milk had actually turned into butter <laughs> <laughs> that they wanted to do again and again but they were only allowed to do it once
0: (laughs) (laughs) what a great memory from what I understand that Charlotte Mason's teaching training college at Ambleside that there was such an esprit de corps there and that the young women while there, they did, they made lifelong friends. They kept in touch. They, you know, they had the Lumila Pianta, the, the students, the, what yes. they call the ex-students a magazine, and they met together. And whenever there was a move, they always republished the addresses so that they could keep in touch. It's so wonderful. It's so wonderful to hear. I mean, that would have been, let me get this right. That would have been Paul Telford's, the, the oldest son, your, your yes. grandfather. That would have been his first child correct
1: yes that's that's right yes so it, it was Peggy was the first child and then the twins were Christine and John John being my father and then Pauline who was always known as Bubbles but Pauline was the youngest
0: yes so wonderful I mean I do think this is exactly what we read about in Charlotte Mason's volumes is that We have this education as an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life. And what comes through so clearly when you discuss your family is that not only do we have heredity, but we also have this atmosphere that emanated from the parents. And because of that, this was something true. It wasn't something forced. It was their their life, right? It was their kind of normal daily life. Education was not a separate part of it. No.
1: Education was life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that I think they didn't really sort of think of it. I mean, my father actually only went to school until he was about 14, because then Telford, his father had died. He, Telford died very young, he was only 47. And so my father's response to that was, well, I can still learn, I don't need to be at school. And he was the, the male of the family. And so he went to work aged 14. But they always continued learning, but learning through life, if that makes sense, and and exploring. And I think we're all actually like, I think most of our family are are like that. My son, interestingly, sent me one of his projects today. He was gone back to university. And it's, it's extraordinary. It's talking about the difficulties for the Nigerian in the Delta about the poverty and the struggles that they go through. And and he is really caring about yeah. people. Again, it's learning about people who have not been given the privileges that actually our family probably were given. And 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 I think that's you know we weren't we weren't incredibly wealthy, but they they had a very good standard of living definitely. But we all have that interest and care for people who don't have who just weren't born at the right time, at the right place, and are now less fortunate. Mm -hmm. My father and all his sisters were hugely supportive of a number of charities, and um, my father supported something like 35 charities throughout his life, NSPCC being the first one, which of course Emily was involved with.
0: Um,
1: And all that has just come through, but naturally, it's never been forced on us. We never felt, gosh, we've got to follow in the family trade. That's a, it's just a natural gene, I think, that's come through.
0: Yes, I, I remember reading in in Aunt May's budget too, where Emmeline she helps children of the Parents Union School have a heart for an orphan that they're going to sponsor. And whether this was a real one orphan or actually the work was going was going toward the entire orphanage, um, she was able to give a face to this person so that the children would. They just developed such a love and a caring for their for their work for this, and I guess it is something that we can bring out because the Petries had a steam engine. Emmeline Steinthal's father and his brother they had um, a steam engine business, and they provided steam engines to the cotton mills. And you can correct me right. if I'm wrong, or enlarge upon it. And then Francis Steinthal had a it was a yarn. Factory, am I correct? Yes,
1: yes, that's right. Yes, he was a wool merchant. Yes, that's yeah. right, in Bradford.
0: And then um your grandfather went on to, though he though he wasn't he he wasn't, he did go to rugby, which is a public school, and in American terms, we can we call that a private school. A private and, school, yes. Right. <laughs> and um, but in my reading of the parents review, um someone brought out the fact that when Paul Telford went to that school, that the headmaster wrote, uh, because he was so um, impressed by his interest and his the love of learning that he brought with him to rugby. And he also continued to partake in all of Aunt May's kind of um, student clubs. He sent yes. in, um, he was sending in acrostic riddles and um, he did brush drawings to illustrate stories things like this. So He was still very much part of of the parents' review school, what it was called at that time. And he went on to, um, he did get his doctorate of science as a mechanical engineer. It might be interesting to the Americans to know that he came over and and actually worked at General Electric for two years before returning back to England. Um, oh, I would love to talk about your aunt Dot, Dorothea, a little bit more because as an artist, she plays a really important role in the the brooch or the student pin that was divine, yes. designed for the students yes. of the Parents Union School. Can you tell us about this at all?
1: Yes, she was she was asked to design it, and and I think the original design I don't have one. Perhaps you. I'm sure that you have one I don't have one (laughs) I've been looking and looking and I'm so just love to have one and I'm sure there must be one in the family treasure somewhere but yes so she actually designed it and you know it's her love of creation and birds and she brought into it the things that were important to her as well And it was the lark, isn't it? That the the bird is the lark. It
0: was the lark. And, you know, they had different designs prior to Dorothea kind of redesigning it because they were never happy with the design. The lark never looked like a lark. And Dorothea, she, she was able to bring in so many ideas to this one small pin where she had the lark rising up to signify the spirit rising up under the wings of the lark and the rising up that happens in our education. I mean, education it's actually so full of symbolism. I yes. have, I did yes. not have one. I would send it on if I did. I do not have one, <laughs> but I have seen two. I've seen two in person. Um, they're silver. They're quite beautiful. And I really, I will keep my eyes out. I have a. I think you have a better chance of finding one over there. And I think they've now changed
1: the symbol. They've, changed, they've altered the design, though, haven't they, over the years?
0: I don't know so. all of the history, but I have one. I have a reproduction of one for the Living Education Retreat that Nancy Kelly mm-hmm. um, kind of redesigned as a symbol for her Charlotte Mason retreat. And um, Right. And one. I uh, will find one. Yes, I you will find one You will. <laughs>
1: And sorry, just going back to to Peggy at Ambleside, something that I mentioned, but she kept in touch with many people from Ambleside, but also, and this made me chuckle, she used to take her sisters, Christine and Pauline, on pilgrimages to Ambleside on holidays,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: really for the rest of their lives. They used to go back to Ambleside, and she used to, and she loved it. I... I always thought that she had lived there for many many years I never understood she'd actually only been there for the three years which I'm but yes she she took them back and they all loved you know their her heart never left Ambleside
0: that's so all. beautiful that's so beautiful and um, you have you have a cottage in the lake district right so is your heart
1: yes that's I'm, <laughs> I'm actually here right at the moment yes I'm sitting oh, here
0: wonderful. <laughs>
1: Where better to do this from? I'm looking up at the the mountain called the Old Man of Coniston, um, which is fairly close to Ambleside, and overlooking the River Crake, which flows through our garden. And I've got lambs and skipping around in the field. It is the most perfect location.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. See, yes. Charlotte Mason Poetry, why didn't you fly me there for this interview? Yes. Um, (laughs) But, well, so, Tell me, how does it feel when you and your cousins are kind of, um, when you visit the Armit Museum or you visit Ilkley and um, what is that like for you?
1: It's, it's an interesting question. And in fact, I asked that question of Jane uh, when she came to stay and Jane being Peggy's, uh, Peggy's daughter. And I was thinking the same word, but it was, it's emotional. It's incredibly emotional. We go to we go to Ilkley Cemetery, um, where the family memorial stone is, and Frances uh, created the stone for uh, when Emmeline died, so she is the first person of the family. But um, since then, all our family, and we're actually going to include our parents as well for the memorial So we go there, which is emotional and brings up joyous memories as well and then we go to visit the two houses that we can still find that they lived in. There was another property they lived in, but I don't know where that is, and it's St. John's where they lived from 1900, I think it was, they moved there. Um, It is is a huge grade two listed property of of historical interest, and therefore you're limited as to, to what changes you can make, and Emmeline and Francis entertained hugely. This the visitors book just highlights how generous they were in so many ways to people they knew, to people they didn't know, and also um, a lot of family from Germany used to, to come over. So we go to visit St. John's and which is now converted into flats. But we can go and stand there and we can imagine, and we <laughs> and they have a blue plaque over here in England, if there's, if it's a particularly building of interest or somebody of interest lived there, they put a blue plaque on. And that blue plaque is that G.K. Chesterton visited the house regularly.
0: <laughs>
1: um, so that's, so everybody who goes past notices that. They probably don't know why he went, but right. um, Francis and G.K. Chesterton were visitors to St. John's in Ilkley. They visited regularly and they visited for long periods of time as well. And all, of course, this is noted in the visitor's book, which is full of G.K. Chesterton's. He, he does a little name and then lots of sketches. So we've got a lot of his illustrations in the book. And for Francis's 50th birthday, he wrote um, a mask, so a little, a play. And all the children, so Telford, Dorothea, Eric, and Paul, all had to participate in this play for their father, which was written by G.K. (laughs) And of course, he talks about you know his meeting of Father John O'Connor was actually at St. John's, and he was the person that the he was the inspiration for the fictional detective of Father Brown. So all that happened actually at St. John's and he talks about striding out of St. John's and onto Ilkley Moor and when I was in Ilkley just a few weeks ago with my cousins we were thinking well actually the moor isn't that close perhaps that was a little bit of poetic license but then we've worked out the route that he walked and he was absolutely right it would have been probably about a four minute walk from St. John's straight onto Ilkley Moor but of course now there are houses there so it's a little bit tricky. But he was very much part of their lives. He loved them, they loved him. We've got so many G.K. Chesterton little illustrations and drawings in the family. And he used to send, he used to wrap up his presents for Dorothea in wrapping paper. And he used to draw on the wrapping paper. And we've still got this wrapping paper Mm -hmm. and little notes that he's left. We've probably got so much of his which is wonderful to keep, and we will always keep. Um, but he was very much thought of as, as almost like part of the family.
0: I know that his wife, Frances, and Emmeline, they both resigned from their duties at the same time, from their duties with the yes. with the PNEU. As much as, as G.K. Chesterton was loved by your family, I remember reading how he said that England just did not, did not know just how much the Steinfeld family brought about the rebuilding of England after the war. He really credited them with a huge amount of the of the rebuilding.
1: And he he actually he converted to being Catholic. I think Francis was maybe Catholic faith, and 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 and, and G.K. converted, which was interesting because. Emmeline and Francis were not, they were what we would call Church of England because St. Margaret's, the church, which is beautiful, is almost opposite St. John's. St. John's was built by a very, very well known architect of the time, Norman Shaw. And St. Margaret's Church was also built by Norman Shaw. And that's where Paul got married and Aunt Dot was confirmed. So there's again, there was the, the, the tie of the, the St. John's and, and the church. But he also um, and something that I had been told as a child, and I remember seeing them, was he also we had a family doll's house and everybody was involved in creating little bits for the doll's house. I remember as a child seeing it at my grandmother's and he wrote lots of little books for the doll's house. (laughs) And somewhere we have we'll have those as well. But yes, he, he was just a big part of the fact, I think he just loved going to St. John's and staying with them and lots of other people as well at the time and in fact, Wilfred, uh, do you know the poet Wilfred Owen?
0: I don't.
1: He was one of Britain's best known well-loved poets during World War I and he wrote an extraordinary amount because he died when he was only 25.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when he was recuperating, he was, he was injured in the war and he was recuperating in Scotland and through friends, he actually met Eric Petrie, mm-hmm. uh, Eric and Maria, and they, they became friends. And he, and, and Wilfred Owen obviously knew of G.K. Chesterton and commented on the fact that Eric's parents were good friends and the relationship and the background of that. And he said, you know, interesting, he said of Eric and Maria, um, he said, I think they are genuine people, the more so because they adore their progeny than because they profess to admire my poetry.
0: Oh, oh that's so wonderful.
1: Again, you know, it was just a sign that someone like Eric, who was obviously Emmeline's third child, that he too was involved in, in, in the sort of the artistic, creative, what they would have said in the time was the bohemian style as well, mixing with these broad-minded, and, and Wilfred, as I say, was only 25 when he died, but he was an extraordinary poet. Um and they they spent quite a lot of time time together as well. Oh. Although I think he never visited, but he did refer to G.K. Chesterton, because everybody in those days thought he was just GK Chesterton was just marvelous. <laughs> 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 and the toast, the, the, there's something in the visitor's book about toasting toast over the fire with a toasting fork. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we used to drink quite a lot too, possibly, but we <laughs> won't, put that, won't put that in the interview. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, And then we go to Mountstead, which is, I can honestly say, one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen. And this is the house that my father, as a child, he remembers going there. They, the family, Emmeline and Francis, moved out of St John's at the beginning of the war. And they rented the, the, the property out and moved to Mountstead. Again, it's in Ilkley, it's up on the moor, and it's absolutely beautiful. And that's where Emmeline stayed for the rest of her life, actually, was at Mountstead, um, mm-hmm. until she passed away. Emmeline died when she was 62, wasn't she? And very suddenly. Oh, and Emmeline, just for your information, was always known as Gaga. I, that's that's. She was always referred to as Gaga, within the family. <laughs> I love
0: that. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And the their children were all very much part of Mountstead, as were the grandchildren. And they used to spend family Christmases all together. I'm not quite sure how they all fitted in, but they obviously did. <laughs> And my father and Jane's mother, Peggy, always used to relate stories about Christmas because they used to say, no, Father Christmas, no, he only comes across Ilkley Moor. That's where you find Father Christmas. And they used to, and we're not quite sure who it was, perhaps it was Francis, used to come across the moor on a sledge carrying all the children's presents. Um, so for years, they believed that that's, Father Christmas just came across Ilkley Moor
0: <laughs> on a sledge. That is so wonderful. Will it, maybe we can link in our um, link in our show notes because I know that G.K. Chesterton actually uh, he wrote a Christmas poem specifically for the Parents Review, which Emmeline did was a co-editor of, and we hadn't even really touched on that. But I did want to say because I want to go back just a little bit, just to say because when I started talking about the the Petries and the Steinthals and and their uh, their factories and their mills. It was so important, you know. Charlotte Mason she was became an orphan as a teenager. She was not well off. Emmeline Steinthal came in and really helped Charlotte Mason with this vision. She she knew so many people. She had connections. But after their first very successful meeting for the for the Parents Educational Union that became the PNEU, Emmeline Steinthal was. I think everyone was so thrilled that there were 80 people coming and becoming members and they were quite excited. But Emmeline was not. She was very concerned that it was not a diverse group. And so she pointed out they needed to have these open meetings in places where they could attract a diverse audience in order to really make this vision that Charlotte had for a liberal education for all. That was also mm-hmm. Emmeline's vision. When Frances Bogg, who had been the secretary of the London branch of the Parents National Education mm-hmm. Union, she uh, married G.K. Chesterton. They were great friends of the Steinhals by this time, there were a lot of preoccupations for Emmeline. She she was the editor of Aunt May's. I don't know if you can tell us more about this. Aunt May was the nickname that Emmeline's children had for Charlotte Mason, but then it it became a part of the Parents Review, and Emmeline wrote it and headed it up. Would you like to talk about that at all? I don't know a huge amount about
1: it. I'm really sorry. I you know, I have read some of it, but I don't I don't know very much about it. I'm sorry, okay. I'm not,
0: not. That's all right. I can I can quickly say that it was it contained recipes for the it was the children's section of the children's magazine. Section, wasn't it?
1: Yes. So it, it contained recipes and and it, it it was also sort of encouraging the children to make certain things so that they could give them to some of the, the children who needed clothes. Um, and then she, and, then she and, and art groups and things like that, wasn't it? And poems and all, it was a real, a real variety of things as far as I can see, because I don't know that, that I don't know too much about it, but I have read bits and pieces mm-hmm. um, and it's a wide, but I suppose this was the purpose of it. You know, the real breadth of things that were included in, in Aunt May's budget. Yes. And it was to keep the children intrigued and to keep them thinking broadly rather than narrowing, narrowing in.
0: Yes, you hit the nail on the head definitely. It spread this broad feast of interests and ideas, but the children were the heart and soul of it. And they the, they were the ones that were doing the work, except um, your great grandmother. This brought so much work for her because she was yes. she was reviewing um, she was reviewing everything that the children so excitedly sent in and were parts of these clubs. And and I believe at one point when when Emmeline resigned, um, because at this point I be- believe she may have become even a a grandmother at this point. I might yes. be wrong. No, she I
1: didn't. think that that's that that's correct. I think the timing of it was that um, the, the grandchildren, Telford, I think was born. And so I think that she felt she needed to spend time with them. And, and she was just being, perhaps like all of us, being pulled in too many directions. Mm-hmm. But as I said in the beginning, I think that's when she perhaps realized that actually family had, had to come first. But she never lost her interest either. I mean, you know that obviously went through till till her dying day. But the, but at that point, the family had to come
0: first. Yes, um, I think Charlotte Mason even said that at, at the point where she resigned, she had upwards of two hundred items from the children to review, and so yes. well, um, <laughs> it just it, it really did become too much. And um, but Emmeline had continued to give um, because it was very important that to Emmeline that it wasn't just an education for children, but that they gave the support to the parents, all of the support that they needed. And she continued on Saturdays to give um, clay modeling lessons and brush drawing lessons to mothers and to teachers. And there was a teacher in Drylington of a huge school of 350 students, the poorest, I believe, district in all of England. Um, It was a coal mining district and When she decided, uh, it was Miss Ambler, when she decided that she wanted to take on this work, she was acquainted with Emmeline Steinthal and she contacted Charlotte Mason. And Charlotte Mason wrote Emmeline at this time. Now, Emmeline would have been, I believe, 60 at this time and said, just think of it. We now have the people, we um, we have a staff, we have what we need to bring this reach even further and wider and your great grandmother rejoined at that time and was so instrumental in getting books to this school and really helping the work of this school so i just can't say enough just how many generations have been affected positively by your great grandmother and that's really what i wanted to bring about you know something that Emmeline said it echoes in my mind constantly as a mother and as someone who works with the Charlotte Mason philosophy. And that is she wanted um, her work to be a light to the mothers and a joy to the children. Yes, yes. I believe everything she did was, and it's what the impetus behind my work, thanks to your great grandmother, And I'm so pleased that you would share and expand on your family today and that you would share so many wonderful personal things about your family and about your great-grandmother with us. Thank you. Uh,
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes.